0: This episode is brought to you by Valora. Valora is a self-custody mobile-first wallet and the easiest way to send, swap, collect, and purchase digital goods on the Cello blockchain. Download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another uh, episode of Empire. We've got the roundup this week, but we have a, a special guest, which is uh, who's Ben Foreman. Ben, uh, longtime friend of BlockWorks. Also, are, are we calling you Santiago's ex- Boss or colleague? Uh Santi, can we use the word boss here?
1: <laughs> no, like uh no, no. I, I used to work for Santiago that, back in the day. Um, no, we're, we we're are, um former former uh teammates.
2: Former teammates, still friends. Uh Ben is a repeat guest. Probably you know, we've had a few people come on the pod, but Ben, you've this is your
1: third time now on the pod? I think so. I think I was on I was on of once and then on, on Empire once. Yeah. So this is my uh this is a Uh, my third time
2: yeah so great to have you on again ben you have unique perspective in everything that's going on in crypto um and so anyways this should be a great episode
0: ben uh ben and santi i have a a kickoff question for both of you all so just for listeners we're going to start off with a couple we usually do the roundup on friday so we're going to talk about a couple of the big news stories of the week specifically binance and maker moving kind of towards the end game and then uh we'll we'll do a much uh deeper dive with ben into like state of DeFi, state of venture um, that I think will be really interesting. But Ben and Santi, question for both of you all to kick this off. Uh, basically, we saw Binance, who has like, depending on what metrics you look at, somewhere between 70 to 90% market share of all trading volume in crypto. Uh, C, uh, their founder, CZ, was charged with evasion of federal law, operating an illegal crypto derivatives exchange by the CFTC. It also just came out like a day or two later that Binance was kind of hiding these substantial links to China uh, for the last several years. Um Would be curious to get your take on just, like, there's the, I think, Adam Cochran take, which is that this is CFTC going for the jugular and that, like, this is the dagger that brings down Binance. And there's other takes being, like, this is just FUD. This is way overblown. So what is your take on, like, signal to noise of this Binance uh, lawsuit?
1: Santiago, why why, why don't you go first?
2: (laughs) This is where the uh former boss kicks in. Yes, sir. <laughs> um
1: well I think it's too early to tell.
2: And it, I don't mean that as a cop-out answer. It does feel I think the the CFTC historically their win rate has been higher. It's a very it's a it's like a 47-page doc, well documented. Uh amongst the more interesting things are how did they get access to his phone records and or signal? And so i I think it's it's a fairly meaty case Uh, i think the precedent here is also bitmex um you know they were charged with uh i think not having proper kyc anti-money laundering um policies in place that allowed for fraudulent activity to take place there's some records here as well in terms of uh, you know uh, some chats there with like there's some, some some links to you know bad actors i guess so I don't know what the outcome of this will be. Um, I'm not sure it's like a fatal blow. I think Binance continues to operate in some capacity. Um, maybe Binance US has to shut down, probably a huge fine. As far as how f- Adam's point was, it's going to be such a big fine that, you know, basically CZ goes you know bankrupt and, and Binance as well. I'm not sure that's all correct. But it's too early to tell. Uh, I just, I'm not an expert into how these cases get settled. Um, and like, for, I guess the last point I'll make is in the BitMEX case, initially it felt like this is a huge blow. BitMEX is going to go out of business. BitMEX certainly had a reputational hit. I, I guess the more important question is if you're a fund, if you're an institutional player in crypto, are you going to be able to operate um, uh, with Binance and transact with them? I would argue a lot of more established funds weren't even interacting with binance in the first place and so the question then becomes from a retail perspective does that actually hinder their business going forward where the, the the power and influence that binance has the dominance that it has just goes down and candidly maybe that's a good thing
0: right that i think that's that that's the main point santi there was this um uh, uh the winter mute founder i um uh, um tweeted out he said what i genuinely didn't know in this whole binance thing was that it's not just retail that's not allowed to trade derivatives on Binance, but any U.S.-based entity, however so- sophisticated they may be. And then he kind of subtweeted it and said, all the largest U.S. algo trading firms have stopped trading derivatives on not just Binance, but all exchanges. That's a fairly big development for the for the whole ecosystem, not just for Binance. So, Ben, I'm curious to get your, how do you contextualize something like this?
1: Yeah, I, I think that um, there are a few like kind of second derivative uh, spillover effects of something like this. Like one is, I just think it pulls even more activity on on chain, um, you know, following FTX, like liquidity was kind of deleted, Uh, a big chunk of liquidity was deleted, um, at a spot markets, uh, market makers pulled off many centralized exchanges. And so if, to the extent Binance has to kind of curtail its trading activities, that's, that's a further blow. Um, but you know, just you know, you've seen recently kind of MetaMask users like really pick up uh, the past few months. I think they had like the single largest day of swap volume. Uh, you know, Gnosis Safe deposits have picked up a lot. You know, Uniswap had one of its highest months of volume um, on record. So I think this kind of pulls more volume and activity back on on, on chain or could. Um, but look, I, I think for a while we're not going to really know the outcome of this. This is probably going to be a multi-year lawsuit and um i think for the time being uh um it's it's a bit more noise than signal until we really understand uh more of the facts
0: the other i'll go back
2: to just emphasizing one point here because i have been getting pinged more and more so by traditional players and be like it's hard to be to your question on signal and noise there's a lot of noise on this i think a lot of people their interpretation of Th- these lawsuits and enforcement actions is very kind of knee jerk. I think you always need to peel it back and say you have to wait until this goes to court. A lot of times it just gets settled, like crack and settled, but like Coinbase will go to court. And it's been, I think that's a more interesting thing that we should be paying attention to. Like you need to believe that the U.S. has a very good judicial system that will interpret this. And by the way, that's the interpretation that we need because we need policy, and that's probably going to come in 2024. And so. In many ways, I think this is very net positive for the space. I mean, Ben, you and I used to talk about this. We just, so many people just say, I love crypto. I believe in it. In spite of FTX, in spite of Terra, we go back to the episode of Morgan Stanley. Those guys are still going to continue to cover this space. It's just like this lingering like regulation and, and lack of clarity that is really the most hurtful thing to the space. And so all of these cases, I think are going to push us closer to the direction of we're going to finally, I think, get some greater clarity, yeah. finance included.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Santu. I mean, Ben, what's your overall framework for this? Like, I think at this point it feels pretty clear. I don't know what we want to call it—Operation Choke Point Two Point Zero or Crackdown on Crypto. you know, kind of cutting off the the onboarding uh, uh, exchanges and folks, uh, venues and things like that. Like, what is your framework for how you're viewing just like this big regulatory crackdown in the states right now?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think it's I think it's a short and medium term headwind in, in the U.S. I think Gensler's term officially ends in April, 2026, it was a five-year term. So we're kind of two years in, three years to go, and maybe it ends earlier. Um, but um, I think this has a shelf life uh, because whoever replaced him will, I think odds are they'll be more um, constructive and, and friendly towards, towards crypto. Um, but look, like the way I kind of look at this is crypto is a global asset class. I think, I think that's sometimes lost. Um, you know the U.S. has four percent of the global population, ten uh, percent of crypto users are in the U.S., ten percent of crypto trading volume, by our estimate is in the U.S. So you know ninety percent is 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 kind of overseas. I think only thirty percent of crypto developers are, are in the U.S. Uh, so I I think underwrite you can underwrite a thesis around crypto you know XUS and still believe in in just a massive TAM um but um i mean look it's been it's been a very uncertain regulatory environment it's very difficult to convince someone to build in crypto without in the us without that regulatory certainty um and so look like long term my my general view is you know good technology wins period um it's kind of like uh you know holding a balloon underwater um you know it, it eventually comes to the surface that's the kind of natural gravity of things um, and, um, I, I don't think we're going to have perfect regulatory clarity for a while, but I, have always viewed kind of regulation as more of an opportunity than a risk. And there's a question of like, what's the market pricing in right now? And I'm not sure it can get, you know, ma- materially, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how much worse it can get unless we go back to 1933 and there's executive order.
0: Uh, yeah, I was gonna well, say, don't don't say those things, Ben. I feel like anytime that uh, Santia and I say it can't get worse, it, it usually gets worse. But
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, look, like I also, <laughs> you know, was was I, I was at TPG in um uh 2011 2012, and we were we were looking at the Uber Series B round, and at the time, literally everyone said, "Hey, this business model will n- ride sharing will never work. The taxi union will never allow it to happen." Um, the I, I think like in paris like the taxi unions were blocking the major highway and they shut it down in austin and then like people just realized like it is super in, it is a 10x 100 improvement to use uber over taxis and it won and it was like jurisdiction by jurisdiction and it took time and there wasn't clarity but it ended up you know it ended up proliferating and same with airbnb and know the hotel union so crypto is no different it's going up against finance and and money and gov which which are controlled by government so this is like not unexpected and once there is regulatory clarity in crypto you know the the kind of the investable opportunity set at that point will probably be diminished like we should all pack up and go home like the the reason there's an opportunity here is is because of the uh current uncertainty to 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 some respect
0: what well, I mean, how do how do you two, uh, maybe Ben, we can start with you, but Sante, I want to get your take on this too. Like, how do you both view the, the price action today? And like, because I'm looking at these prices and it it almost does feel like a bit of a narrative violation. Um, seeing, I mean, these are kind of rough numbers, like Bitcoin's up like 70% on the year. ETH is up 50%. Solana is up, up 2x. Lido's up like 150%. AVAX up 60%. Um, Cosmos <laughs> is up like 20%. So we're in the in the light of like we've nuked every company, half the reputations are dead. Uh, we we like the whole industry. If you if you don't work in the industry, is is kind of a laughing stock. But prices right now are are two times off the lows. So I'm I'm curious how how you like view this price action.
1: Yeah, well, look, I, th- I think um, I I think that tech has rallied this year overall. Like if you look at kind of the the big biggest five companies in the U.S., they're up. 19% right. year to date. The SP is roughly up, you know, kind of flat year to date. So if you think about crypto as kind of being, That's you know, true. tech beta plus, plus it, it, it kind of makes sense. Um, but look, like I, I um I I think that this year in liquid markets, um I think there's gonna be a fair amount of return dispersion uh between different names and in more of a token pickers market and what, what I'm kind of, you know, this doesn't directly answer your question, but what I'm a little bit uh, kind of um, it makes me a bit more bearish overall is, you know, on the, the 1.1 trillion of, of crypto market cap, there's roughly like 5 to 6% just inflation per year. So 55 to $65 billion of like supply structurally coming online through token unlocks and staking rewards and I'm just not sure who's, who's going to buy all that. Um, and so I, um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think retail can absorb all that. Um, I think institutions maybe come in and buy Bitcoin, uh, or Ethereum, but I don't think they're going to, they're you know going further down the list than that. And I also think that crypto VC does not have a, a super strong bid the, right now. Um, and so, uh, that makes me uh you know i i do think there is an element of like a relief rally that we've seen uh th- this quarter on, on some of those names uh, uh but um but i think like again this year will be very like will be, will be very narrative driven and like if you own like mm. the top quartile you know you could deliver significant alpha versus being in the in the bottom quartile and we'll have like a very correlated uh yeah.
0: you know market environment you you Still think it'll be narrative driven so we had kane on the podcast and uh, one thing santi and him were getting into and and that episode drops on monday for anyone who's listening but um one thing we got into is is uh like narrative driven rallies for some and like narrative driven cycles and when that could end and when maybe cycles will be driven by or like winners will be picked by things like cash flows instead of just narratives um and I, I, I kind of hear you pushing back on that a little bit. So maybe I use the
1: wrong term in narrative. I, I think there'll be dispersion in performance and that per- performance will be driven by fundamentals and, and, and narrative. Mm, yeah. um, uh, so you know, just as an example, like we were, we were looking at, at some, some interesting data. So I mean, like last year, if you look at in, in 2022, kind of the top 250 tokens on CoinMarketCap, Um, and look at performance from like Jan one through, through December 31st, um, you know, the median name was down kind of 85% and like the median name in the top quartile was down 64%. So there was like kind of nowhere, nowhere really to hide. But if you go back to like 2019, 2020, kind of, there was a lot more variance in the market and you had like DeFi breakout during certain time periods where, you know, the majors were basically flat, um. So, uh, you know, th- there was significantly more kind of dispersion. I-, I do think fundamentals matter. I think long-term fundamentals, you know, the market is a weighing machine, not a not a voting machine. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, but the reality is, is like, we're, the market is in crypto. Like these, you know, DAOs are still in price discovery. They're a brand new asset class. So ha- we could have a debate around, should MakerDAO be valued at, you know, 10 times earnings or a hundred times earnings. <laughs> and that probably matters more uh, than whether earnings are 50 million or 70 yeah. million, right? Yeah. That's like a 40% difference versus a 10X different on, on multiples. So I think multiples matter more. Multiples are dictated more by by narrative than, you know, f- fundamentals, like perceived growth and uh, uh, it really is what drives it.
2: I guess on this point, Ben, I'm, I'm really curious to get your thoughts generally overall on, on the crypto VC market. Um, I mean, where you guys sit, you traffic in both public and private markets. Um, you have a growth fund, you have a liquid fund, you have a credit fund. So you're doing a, a bunch of strategies, but overall, like, walk us through like how, for a founder or a project out there, like, how much capital is actually there to invest to absorb a lot of this supply that comes online? Um, I'm just sort of curious, um, some of the trends and kind of things that you're observing in the market.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is a major challenge right now. So if you kind of look at crypto VC, there's been, we're looking back since inception, there's been roughly like $85 billion invested in crypto VC for the past, like 13, 14 years. Um, about like 60 billion of that 85 billion was invested in the past two years. and you know, like just rough math, if you assume that 60 billion bought like 10% of, of these companies, that's like $600 billion of kind of private company market cap that's been created in crypto over the past two years. And my my sense is just like if, you, we, if we kind of draw proxies to like public tech and, and liquid tokens, those names are, there's probably 400 billion, say two thirds of like, you know, Uh, unrealized mark to market impact on those, on the privates that have, that have been deployed. Um, And we haven't like, we haven't really realized a lot of it. Like FTX was 32 billion. BlockFi was five. If you kind of add up the names that have like where we've the pain has been experienced, it's maybe like 50 billion. But um, what, what I've, what, what um, we're seeing is, I mean, there are just a lot of companies that are, kind of zombies for for lack of a better term they they may have runway but they have you know no real product market fit um you know they're burning cash uh or m- maybe they're making some revenue but they have negative unit economics like their activity is is incentivized um and you know they're kind of fast approaching you know the the moment of reckoning where maybe they're I think the majority of these teams are going to see runway depleted by say Q4 of this year or, or early next year. Um, and uh, so right now, look, we are, you know, we've seen, we've looked at deals where teams have a couple months of runway left and are trying to raise a bridge round. Um, you know, we've looked at teams that uh, you know, where, you know, there, there's no hope of ever clearing the pref stack or we've looked at teams that have kind of been returning capital or trying to, be aqua hired, but I, you know, there, there does feel like it does feel like we're going to see a lot of down rounds, um, a, a lot of kind of pay to play, uh, and, um, I, I think this is kind of the mess that the, the excess of the last few years, uh, uh that we're going to have to like clean up as, as an industry, um. And look, I, I don't want to be overly negative because like, I, you know, a, on the other hand, I think there's a great deployment opportunity right now. I think there are incredible founders that are building in really, really interesting kind of verticals, but also think it's, it's important to be intellectually honest, just about this kind of deferred pain, deferred mark to market that is, is coming over the next couple of years. Mm.
2: I was having this conversation today with a uh, fund funds, uh, one of funds, probably the largest one in crypto. And they are like, you know it felt like they were very impatient now. I was like, well, wait a minute, guys, like impatient in the sense, like tell me, I think the, the specific question was like, tell me an application that has real traction and, and like killer use case. I was like, okay, good point. You got me cornered. Um, and I guess the, the question for you is, are you experiencing, like, do, do you feel like there's like a lot of fatigue in this? Like, there's folks that increasing are skeptical critical of crypto look at it when you talk to potential LPS and they're like we just don't believe that the use case is there it's just this is just a casino and people speculate maybe that's a use case and we should just be more honest about it um but I'm I'm curious if you feel that that the bar is much higher for someone coming in to for them to invest in the space they'd rather just maybe go to AI or whatever
1: yeah I mean I I think particularly after chat GPT which you know, got to, I think, 100 million users in two months. It was like a very, people like tangibly could understand the impact that that technology has. Whereas, you know, with crypto, uh, you know, there may be six, seven million users on, uh, you know, Ethereum. uh, And it's been, you know, close to eight years. Uh, So it's, I, I do think it's difficult for people to grasp, like what the real use cases are. And I think that's spot on, like people don't really care about zero knowledge proofs or layer two scaling, like the institutions that are allocating to the space, what they're, I think, more focused on is like, why does this technology matter? And I, I think for use cases, uh, you know, like San, Santiago, we, we obviously talked about this a ton, like just I think stable coins are probably the, the most real of any crypto use case, yep. you know clearing like $7.2 trillion on, on Ethereum last year, it's like 60, 70% of Visa's settlement volume. Uh, it, it is real. And that it's gotten there in just a few years. Um, and it's used in things like, you know, B2B payments. And I, I think mm-hmm. that people can kind of grasp that. Uh, but I do think that is like the key. The next unlock um, is, is, is people like really being able to point their finger at, at a way that crypto is is actually like making a difference in, in their mm-hmm. lives, and maybe, and maybe honestly, like the, a lot of the applications on blockchain within the DeFi space are really more B two B. So people mm-hmm. just start interacting with fintech companies and banks, and don't actually the complexity of DeFi is abstracted away. So they never really realize that their, you know, remittance uh, to family members in another country is, you know, being settled. Mm-hmm via you know Bitso or you mm-hmm. know, being settled in stable coins. Uh, but I think right now that is like the major that that is the major challenge is nothing's really captured uh, allocator's yeah. attention.
2: How big of an impact do you think base um, has and and what are your general thoughts on this is Coinbase L2 coin base, no pun intended.
1: Yeah I mean look I, I think it's I, I think it's uh, a, b- a big opportunity um, to, to bring people on chain. Like Coinbase has 110 million registered users. Mm. And I mean, the challenge has always been that flow from like depositing fiat onto an exchange, buying crypto, but then from buying crypto, like getting it onto your MetaMask wallet uh, uh, or your Coinbase wallet it, or your rainbow wallet, it, it's difficult. That step is more difficult. And so if they can kind of hold users' hands and bring them in, I think I mean I think it's I think it could be, you know, we, we could see double or triple the amount of users on chain, like without without too much um, you know, w- without too many kind of underlying assumptions is my is my take. Yeah.
2: Yeah, because it feels to me like you need a hand holding experience. Like it's it's almost like in the early days of a smartphone. You just had maybe email, internet was really slow, and then like Apple would really push it forward with like the App Store. And there were certainly like there's a lot of apps right now in crypto. there will be more and better ones uh, but you need like a trusted app store IE base in this case to hold you through that flow and it's almost like you don't really you blur the lines between what is on chain and off chain. You just think, okay, I'm entering this crypto journey and coinbase will hold you you know will walk you through it. Uh, and I think that's super important for like 99 percent of users.
0: But do you think do you guys think that um this will almost be like building a website in no code? Like when we started blockworks we built our website on Squarespace and then it was like okay we need to graduate from Squarespace so we went to something called Webflow which was like a little more advanced and then we're like okay now we're building like a real like media company here we're going to graduate to and from that and build like our own full stack infrastructure could you make a comparable thing to like okay we'll we'll start by using like arbitrum's Like l3 builder or like coinbase base but then like once you want to actually like build this performant thing maybe you do like the dydx move and like try to own the whole stack do you think there's an analogy to to be made there or no not with composability
2: right because it's evm compatible so like it just doesn't really if you're from a builder perspective not really from a user perspective doesn't really matter right as long as the website loads fast and you're not getting like your credit card stolen. <laughs> That's all you really care about, right? So, I think uh, look right now, it's like we have the smartphone, we have pretty good bandwidth. I like transaction fees are negligible now, and people were complaining about those like a year ago. Now you have a sur- infrastructure surplus. You probably need really good apps. So we don't. We're working on that. I'd say. Um, but I want to get your take on um, just generally how you think about. Um, this opportunity between like early stage where that market is, because valuations, have they adjusted? Have they come down? Are they picking back up? How much activity you're seeing there versus the opportunity kind of in the liquid market and how you think about kind of the opportunities in the, in in both uh, sectors.
1: So look, I I think the uh, valuation environments, like orders of magnitude different than it was 18 months ago. You know, pre-seed seed rounds are down to kind of the seven to fifteen million dollar range, and uh, we were tracking this data internally back at the beginning of 2022, which was kind of close to close to the market peak. Uh, the average early stage token deal we looked at in say January of last year was 72 million fully diluted so you've almost you you've seen a material kind of compression and look like i think this is kind of back to where we were in 2015 2016 just broadly if you look at teams coming out of y combinator you know the median seed round was maybe at 8, eight 9 10 million post if there was a killer team second time founder or someone building in a in a really hot kind of category maybe 20 maybe 25 but that would be on the absolute highest end so we're kind of back to where, I think we're back to more rational kind of valuation environment on these pre-seed and seed deals. Um, I think similar, like Series A's are back to 40 to 60 million. B's are maybe 100 to 250 million. It's Everything is really reset. Um, I would say anything later than Series B, uh, you know, you're not seeing deals get done. Because those companies like want to avoid avoid down rounds, so there is still activity in the very early stage market, uh, uh, which which I think is I think it's the best the best investment environment. It reminds me of you know twenty nineteen and uh, early twenty twenty from just a valuation standpoint. And um, the other thing is that's super interesting right now is just the secondary opportunities that have never existed in crypto before. So. The biggest bankruptcy estates, FTX, Celsius, Voyager—they all ran big venture portfolios. Um, I think FTX has 552 line items in their portfolio of like venture investments they've made in crypto companies. So they're, you know, that estate is divesting those uh, those names at like very material discounts to you know prior rounds. Um, and then there's also kind of just secondary selling from investors who put capital into companies in 2021, 2022, more, t- I would say, touristy capital. So generalist venture funds, crossover funds, yeah. corporate yeah. venture funds, and now, you know, maybe don't have conviction in crypto. So I think the fact that you can buy high quality growth names, a big, big discounts to pry around is kind of cannibalizing any demand for. Um, you know, primaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it. I think it's a pretty interesting investing environment relative to what, what we've seen at any time, and you know, any time recently.
2: How does the, on the FTX specifically, I don't know if you've looked into this detail, but like people started complaining, wait a minute, SBF is paying all these fees from presumably depositor money. We're bankrolling his lawyers. Um, is that the case where there could be a clawback? So say that you were to buy um, a bank, like, part of the FTX Ventures portfolio. You buy the position, then three years down the road, the court says, no, no, wait a minute. That like that was used with misappropriated capital in the first place. So you got to give it back. Is that like a scenario that you like, does that does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So I, I think typically so most of these asset sales that are being made from these estates require court approval to begin with. So if there's any kind of concern around like avoidable preference payment or fraudulent conveyance, like that would, I think be considered prior to approving. Okay. And any of these asset sales. And then also there's, there's sometimes like this de minimis asset level exemption, where if there's an asset that's being sold, that's less than, you know, 25 million cost or 5 million at market, then sometimes those have a more kind of uh, expedited approval Mm -hmm. process. To to get sold, and they don't require as much kind of as 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 much credit or approval. They can get approved much more quickly. So,
0: Hmm.
1: there's quite a bit. I mean, there's there's maybe like five to ten billion dollars of, or probably closer to ten billion dollars of like cost basis, Hmm. crypto venture assets that are sitting in across these across these bankruptcy uh, estates at the moment.
2: Out of curiosity, what kind of discount? or is there not just for the FTX stuff, but just generally in the market, like, is this like back to 60, 70, 80%, 90% discount? Like, I'm curious.
0: Santi's Th- ears are perking up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, cause I've it, seen it.
0: it. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, the uh, short answer this is, is yes. On
1: the yeah. The, the short answer is yes. Like the, the, discounts are, are that material. Um, in some cases, I think this was announced like suey bought back, uh, a large, they bought back their own position in, uh, that, that FTX had acquired, I believe like a five or 10% discount. So I think Mm -hmm. first law, and like a lot of these, these positions will have, you know, right of first refusals or transfer restrictions. So it's not like anyone can just show up and buy. And if you do agree to buy the company can kind of preempt you and buy back their own, their own, uh, stock. Um, but, but generally like, yes, those, those discounts are, Hmm. are, are very real.
0: Guys, there's this other market that we haven't talked about much on, on on just this podcast in general, on Empire, but and in this episode, which is um, during, uh, buying directly from treasuries. So Ben, we we're talking about like the private market deals that are kind of th- these down rounds. Then there's these public markets that might be undervalued, like if you're a blue chip. Then there's this third bucket, which is like these deals that kind of look like private deals because you're getting discounts, you're getting lockups, but you're going directly and buying a token. Can one of you guys just kind of give me an insight into like, what that market looks like today.
2: God, I think we invented that market. Didn't we Ben?
0: <laughs> yeah, we, no, no, we,
2: kidding,
0: no, we,
1: we did. Yeah, no, we, like- we, I think, <laughs> I think we did. We like, we called them like pipe T's. So private yeah, investment, yeah, in yeah. <laughs> like a pipe in public equity land, but in, in, in crypto. But yeah, no, Santiago, go, go ahead. And this is uh, the verified wait,
0: TM, wait, What was the, way. what was the first deal? What was the first pipe tea? Uh, Ave
2: probably returned our fund. Uh, shout out to Stanley and all the team. They're doing great work. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we, um, yeah, it was, uh, we went to them and look, people say, oh, you got a great deal. It's like, there was a lot of work that goes into convincing a team to open up and then sell you tokens. Even back in the bear market, it was like, and so we, we just, we had so many meetings with them of like saying, we got to restructure the token. This was the time where like the token model was like pretty broken. Whereas like distributing like fees to everyone and not just active stakers. So we did a lot of work, um, at least Parify is a fun. We, we would go to the team, do so much work, show value up front. And then, you know, to say, Hey, listen, we're willing to be a long-term partner for you. And, you know, would you, I guess you could sell in the open market. What's gonna be the signaling of that versus this is I would consider it this is like a a a a, a, ra- a fundraising of itself because you're you're parking tokens to a, a good custodian that is gonna con- commit it to like there's some clause in there that was like we're gonna help you in XYZ in a very concrete manner. And so we did that with so many other projects after that. And then others started copying the market, like we mm-hmm. we were one of the largest investors in Lido. And then like, uh, there was like a few funds. I think it was dragonfly and like paradigm that paradigm did execute it on, but it had to be on chain. Like it was like, they formally wrote a proposal in the governance forum and said, Hey, we want to buy X percent and the token holders would vote. And sometimes <clears throat> it would pass. Other times it didn't like when FTX ventures, uh, funny enough for it was Lightspeed wanted to buy sushi, got denied by the community. And, but, um, hmm. yeah, I, I think for a, for a team, it's, you know, you almost, you always want to find a good partner, right? And this happens like, ben, as Ben said, like pipes are f- fairly common, like, like Warren Buffett does this exceptionally well. I think he probably is going to do more of these in this current environment. He did that in the global financial crisis. And, you know, for a team, it's great insofar as you find a really good partner, right? That, yeah. By the way, it locks it up for multiple years, right? When you sell in the open market, anyway, so it is like a like, private
0: but, deal, right? And that you're lo- like, let's say you buy from the Lido Treasury today, you might get so Lido's trading at two point two fully diluted today. It's some discount. You might get it at like a thirty percent discount, but you're locked for a year or two. basic basic structure yeah
2: yeah you factor in an illiquidity discount if there's a options market then you can also reference that as just or just generally look at the volatility of the token and say hey listen if the ball of the token is like 20 percent or so in the last like x percent well we should be getting probably that plus an illiquidity discount right yeah hopefully not to give too much of the secret sauce here but anyways (laughs) teams can try to do it not all of them actually can do it because at the end of the day you really need a hustle to prove your worth so ben what does
0: this market look like today right now
1: yeah, I mean I, I think it's uh, I think there's a little bit of adverse selection in the market today because token prices are down so much so teams to set, then sell at like an an additional discount of 30 40 50% uh, is I think a lot for teams to kind of swallow. So the teams that are doing it are um, the ones that actually like need to extend their runway or, or have like a very firm use case uh, use of proceeds for that that capital. Um, Back in in twenty twenty one, early twenty twenty two, I think there were like you know massive deals like this that were were getting done. I think today it's a bit,
0: a mm. bit less less common. That's interesting. I didn't realize you guys started that with Ave. That's cool.
2: I mean, if anyone wants to contest that, feel free to comment. <laughs> um, but
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a big part of our strategy. Yeah. Ben, any other uh, hidden stories from uh, from the early Parify uh, days that you uh, that you've too, okay. too many, too many, yeah. We
2: the best one for me is was, and it's relevant in the sense of when people ask you like, how big do you think this space is going to be? It's sort of like this idea that you underestimate like what can happen. And the timing is really difficult, but like I think we were having discussions around how big DeFi could get, how much capital could be locked in some of these protocols, and like we were modeling out like Ave had like. It was like four or five million in deposits, maybe, maybe a million. Yeah. It was like less than a million when we were looking at it. And then all of a sudden that went to like 200 billion. <laughs> it was like, or I don't know if it, no, actually not 200 billion. It, it was like, it was like in the billions, right? Like that to me was always like, yeah, you can think that you're smart. You think like it's, we we're using these things. And it, all of a sudden it was like, Yeah, how like you just go from less than a million to a couple billion, and you're like, okay, well that happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in like in every model that we built, we were thinking linearly or more linearly in terms of growth, and like the just the pace of like acceleration uh, after DeFi summer for that like next twelve to eighteen months was like a far right tail. Like, you know, the, the upside case, it far exceeded any kind of bull case that, that we, mm. I think, could have put together. Um, no, I think the story, the one story that always sticks in my mind from, um, it kind of re- also reminds me a bit of today's environment was just Black Thursday with MakerDAO. I mean, that was in my, like, as I think back to, like, a watershed mm. moment for the space, I mean, everything, everything could have changed. Uh, it. I think ETH was hugging like eighty dollars at the time, and if it would have broken eighty dollars, um, MakerDAO would have basically. There's no DeFi.
0: A- you could argue there's like no no de- yeah sets DeFi back five years. Yeah.
2: That was existential. That
0: wait, was can existential. you get, wait? Wait, actually, for people who don't know that story, can can one of you maybe actually share that a little bit? Yeah, then go for it.
1: Uh, so yeah, so th- that was so this was in uh, like, I think the second week of March. Uh, in 2020. And this was kind of like right at the beginning of, of the pandemic when lockdowns were starting and you know, equity markets were really trailing off. And there was a, you know, one, one night, I think it was a Thursday night or, or Wednesday night into Thursday where everything was down. Like Bitcoin and ETH were down 50% in, in like 12 hours. And, um, uh, and, and alts were down, some, some of them were down like 60, 70%. And it actually happened in like two phases. So, you know, it was like six hour phase where Bitcoin like kind of went down 25, 30%. And then it, people like kind of bought that dip and then it went down again and just crushed. It crushed a number of funds, a number of, uh, you know, there was just a lot, of, a lot of stress in the system. But specifically on MakerDAO, what happened is the collateralized debt positions, which were people had posted ETH and borrowed DAI. Were, were getting liquidated. The issue was that the way the liquidations worked is people bid on the eth collateral. And because gas prices were so high on the Ethereum network, uh, people could people were bidding far below like the, the value of those assets. This was back when gas prices were, like when the network got congested gas price, cause we didn't have like L2s back then. So the, the like, no one could really bid on this collateral. There was also only maybe like one or two people bidding because there weren't as many market makers and DeFi at the time. So basically like the collateral that was getting bid on was getting bid at a meaningful haircut that was below the amount of debt that, that maker had issued. And so there was impairment to the system. Uh, and there were a few other dynamics and, Sandra, you probably remember these more, but but basically, Dai was also breaking. the The other dynamic, which was interesting, is yeah, Dai was DAI is a stable the as People know, it was breaking above the peg. It was trading at like a dollar and twenty cents, because there was just no liquidity. Everyone wanted to buy Dai to delever, and um, you know there, there was no liquidity on Coinbase. No, no one could find it. Like,
2: there's no curve. At, or curve was just not even like
1: not around at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So people had to, um, they had to, so, so, you know, we, there were maker calls all day. Eventually USDC was added as collateral. So you could put one USDC in and and borrow one die. And that alleviated the pressure on die created. And and by the way,
2: uh, had that not happened, that's very contentious by the way. And we were advocating for it because like, guys, if we don't do this, it's going to like maker goes like, That was the watershed moment where like people rallied behind USDC because it was like, this is one of the more important things for the viability of maker and stability of of maker. And yeah, now we're in a world where USDC is a big part of the collateral base, but there was a lot of really anti USDC folks at the time. And it it came a moment of like, come to Jesus moments. Like, guys, we don't do this. We don't know if we're going to be here in 24 hours.
0: Right. And was there someone on the other end of this too? Like... I don't want to use the word exploiting the protocol, but like like shorting the hell out of the shorting the hell out of Maker. Or I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure there there was maybe. um,
1: Yeah, Yeah. there's There's always
2: rumors of miners coordinating, and you know, I've heard heard some of those. The the... it's hard to say, but uh, I think uh, yeah. I remember calling Ben. This was the night before because I had to wake up super early that morning because I was giving a class at NYU, and so uh, we were in the San Francisco. I woke up at like four or five in the morning and this was all happening. And I thought it was like, I didn't have, I wouldn't grab coffee cause I thought like mm. my addiction to caffeine was <laughs> to a point where I like was not reading prices correctly. But, uh, I remember calling Ben in the night before and it was like, this is where the, the, the big catalyst there was, I think the world health organization came out that morning saying COVID is a global pandemic, but more so I remember seeing a headline. That was like super stupid, like Mel Gibson and some other celebrity had gotten COVID and I called Ben and said hey man I feel like I feel like this is the moment where people say like oh Eve royalty and celebrities can't like protect themselves from this stuff then that's where like it it hits home and what well, yeah, was the NBA were,
0: lockdown the day before Black Thursday I remember that yeah NBA there's like a the few moment. like yeah. subtle
2: things like that and I think that's something that I've come to appreciate just like in crypto like these very subtle like you can then extrapolate and say okay this is why like when you think about the the wall street bets phenomenon silicon valley bank like i feel like we're in this state of the world where like the information propagation like coordination and then the coordination of that and like how actionable things it's just these things escalate super quickly um it was it was a fun yeah. 72 hours i'd say
1: it's kind of amazing did- to think that you know like MakerDAO has kind of survived as long as it has, despite all these challenges and DeFi survived as long as it has. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, and okay, then, and then,
2: then the, the thing yeah. like people, like we obviously think that was a very scary moment because the, 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 you see something go down 80%? You're like, Holy, Holy shit. But like the sheer number, the absolute number of liquidations that have happened since black Thursday, there's been events where like there's been far greater, you know, Sheer amount of dollar amount of liquidations that have happened and been absorbed by DeFi in a fairly seamless, flawless manner, and so all the more impressive that uh, you know, crypto sort of built all this resiliency.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think at the time there was maybe a five million dollar shortfall that I think was absorbed by by VCs, which was actually a huge amount of VC capital at the time to buy MKR at auction to cover the shortfall. But I, I think that it was it's almost like a blessing in a way because if you can. Because that uh, it stressed the system, so we, we were able to identify these vulnerabilities and then patch them, and you know build up kind of this this Lindy effect. Um, so it's almost it, so so to some degree it was like a blessing that the system was stress tested then, because if it wasn't stress tested then and, and mm. only experienced a small loss, like it perhaps would have been bigger at one of the mm. subsequent crashes when there was far more uh, die
0: outstanding. Valora is the ultimate wallet for exploring the Celo ecosystem. Easily manage over 50 crypto assets and over 30 different dApps for swapping, sending, and managing your assets all from your mobile phone. The world is mobile first and Valora believes that crypto should be too. Their global app is localized in over 13 different languages in over 100 countries, giving crypto explorers like you a simple and accessible way to send payments, purchase digital goods, and access a suite of decentralized financial services if you want to see real world use cases for crypto valora's in-app DApps page is the easiest way to access a growing list of the latest refi and DeFi applications on the Celo blockchain download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire that's valora v-a-l-o-r-a app app valoraapp.com forward slash empire
2: I think Parify really made its name as kind of DeFi and being super active in DeFi markets and it becoming a huge category um we had kane on and we had the same i'll i'll ask you the same question that i did him is like you know degen spartan uh a very well-known kind of alt uh personality in twitter always likes to post the chart of DeFi versus eth and you know DeFi has been sort of in this mark in this kind of um, down, down market. Well before Terra. Well before Three Arrows. Like it was just, um, it was coming off uh, six months before kind of rates were even hiked. And so, what's what's kind of the state of DeFi? Walk us through kind of what your thesis has been, how it has evolved, and and what do you see kind of going forward? Like, as you are as excited of DeFi today, or do you see opportunities elsewhere? How do you think about all that?
1: Yeah, I, I think I've, I I remain very excited about DeFi, but the areas in which I've, I'm excited specifically have maybe shifted a bit. Um, so I, I think like big picture, you know, maybe there have been three to 4,000 DeFi projects that have kind of launched since DeFi summer uh, that, you know, decks we've seen in other other universes we we monitor. And maybe there are 30 to 40 of those that are, you know, even relevant today. And maybe only five to ten that actually truly matter. Um uh, you know, and, and maybe a subset of those will will actually kind of survive long term. So I think the vast majority of activity has been, um, you know, there's been a lot of experiments and many of them have died by, you know, death by governance, death by uh lack of originality or lack of community um or some sort of smart contract bug. Um so I, I think this like first vintage of DeFi names was was really interesting. I think like we learned a lot, um, but basically we really only have, as I think about it, product market fit in two areas in DeFi today. Um, you know, spot trading on mostly on AMMs, and then borrowing and lending on Compound and Aave, and maybe there's a a, a little bit on on insurance and perps and things like that. But there's not really. Um, you know, much else outside of that, uh, and where we've been more focused recently has been on this theme of kind of more permissioned DeFi and tokenization of real world assets, um, and it's not mutually exclusive with kind of the permissionless DeFi world that you know we've all come to to know and love. Um, but it's interesting because I think it accesses like a very very large TAM and solves some very um, solves problems that are are really interesting and create a lot of value. Um, so that is that's been a big area of focus for us. So it's you know it, it's it's a more regulated DeFi where institutions that have gone through KYC AML are trading, lending, borrowing, buying insurance, you know, issuing securities, but all in a permissioned. Regulatory compliant, um, you know, I- I environment, um, and so that's that's really where we've and we we, we can you know double click on this more, but that's 100%. been I would say our our kind of major area of, of focus as of late.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm curious uh, to dive just a little bit deeper on that, and and obviously, uh, it sounds like liquidity is really dried out. Like you have a lot of the centralized players have gone out of business because of terrible risk management, and it's pretty hard. There's like a, a few pieces of infrastructure that have really been gone away or just severely handicapped now in the centralized manner. Do you think that that shifts on chain at some point? Or are you excited and also looking at building a, a better genesis with a better team and risk management in place or a better BlockFi? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm curious how you think this, there's been a lot of ashes currently that and avoids in the market, particularly liquidity that needs to be kind of filled in. Where do you think that infrastructure gets built and by who?
1: Yeah, so I I think that and and maybe this is this is a contrarian take. Um, you guys tell me, but I I think that there's this narrative that CFI is dead and like not coming back. And I I think kind of the the blockfies of the world or or different iterations of blockfies with with better risk management uh, are gonna are gonna come back and they're gonna be important in the space. But I think they'll look different. So you know, some sort of hybrid of CFI and DeFi where um, you get the benefits of DeFi, like the transparency and the global nature and the programmability and, and the, the instant settlement. But you'll have the front end of, of, of a CeFi uh, platform, which is, you know, more user friendly. You can pick up the phone and do, you know, you can get tax forms. It's KYC AML. There's kind of customer support and you kind of get like the best of, of both worlds. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that that is... Um, you know, that's going to be a major, a major, uh, a major theme. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, like what's interesting right now is, you know, on MakerDAO back to MakerDAO or even compound or Aave, people can borrow stables at a much, much lower rate (laughs) than you can borrow in OTC markets, but people aren't doing it. And I, despite the fact that it's maybe six, 700 basis points cheaper. And Mm. so the question is why? And, um, I, I can tell you why, um, uh, you know, my, my, my thesis for it is just that, um, you know, people don't want to, the stress of interacting with smart contracts. Uh, the infrastructure isn't totally there to, you know, get alerts in the middle of the night if the market's trading down. You know, if if the market's trading down um, and you have a position with, um, you know, Galaxy or you know, Cumberland, you know, they give you time to post margin. It's, it's a bit more white glove experience. And so people are willing to pay more for that, that experience. And so I think there's a way to really bridge the two worlds uh, um, that, mm-hmm. you know, would benefit both.
2: For anyone listening, we, uh, I was telling this to one team that I invested in JPEG for NFTs as collateral. I said, guys, why can't someone build like a, a smart contract that has a time lock Where if you get liquidated, it goes into this escrow account that has a time lock where you can refill collateral for 48 hours, or some, and you pay like an annual like insurance fee that you pay the prime broker, like, and it's a fee for the protocol. I'm like, hey, can Ave, hey Stani, you listening? Like, why don't you just build this? Because I know for a fact a lot of funds for this reason don't use DeFi because yeah, you're right. Like Black Thursday happens you get three calls to refill the collateral during those 24 hours and it's appreciated right you don't want to lose that collateral right. and i think there's a way to like work the this way in in a programmable manner right and there's some logic and a flow that that can work um speaking of like state like you you reference like um you know borrowing stables and whatnot what um what's going through your mind when usdc depegs uh, or Dpeg like a couple weeks back. We're, you and I were talking about that, but I'm just kind of curious, like as a as a first question into generally what you think about stable coins central like CBDCs, um, Tether, USDC, and, and whatnot.
1: Yeah, I, I think my first like reaction was, you know, like any like fiat backed stablecoin is only as strong as the banking system that's that's behind it. And so when when it first traded off, I mean, like. When they gave disclosure around what their what their kind of banking exposure was, and they circle mentioned, hey, we have 3.3 billion dollars with Silicon Valley Bank of the 40 billion of USDC outstanding. Um, I think that allowed kind of everyone to kind of si- size kind of the exact, you know percent of the exact kind of shortfall. That would be if S- as, as if the money on SVB got a zero recovery, which I think would be a, a pretty aggressive assumption. Um, I think I think the average in an average bank failure, uninsured depositors have recouped like seventy-seven cents on the dollar. We were looking at some data, so we um, so so I was quite surprised to see USDC trade all the way down to eighty-eight cents. And I think there were some weird dynamics over that weekend where you know banking rails weren't live, Coinbase you couldn't convert, you know. Uh, you, you couldn't convert uh, USD into USDC one to one, so there's very limited liquidity on centralized exchanges. You also saw Tether break break above the peg. I mean, it was it was a really it was a really fascinating environment. My my thought in the aftermath of it, my, the question I've been asking myself, I'm curious to to your guys' take on this is like, what are people going to think about USDC after this event? Will will people have a more positive view on it? Like, hey, it was able to like actually survive. Um, uh, or will people not want to touch it anymore? And that's been, th- and and I used, I think you've seen since this event, USDC supply come down from 40 billion to 33, 34 billion, and then tether supply, uh, grow. So maybe that says the market is, is I, I think high. it
0: depends who you are, Ben. Like, I think, uh, I think if you're crypto native, this is a supportive event for USDC. This makes you almost instills more confidence in USDC. You're like, this was really battle tested. And, um, and it, and it gives me a bit of confidence that they'll kind of do what it takes to to make sure that it that that it remain that the peg maintains there is a cohort of people who work at traditional financial institutions who work in compliance departments that were completely spooked by this and we've had a couple of calls with these folks at the kind of major payment processors and 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 some of the bulge brackets who had considered touching USDC in one way or another that won't touch it with a 10-foot pole now and that's because of their compliance departments.
2: Um, how how much of user business you reference? Like it's still uh, fairly kind of difficult. Certain parts of what were you used to in traditional finance, your prime brokerage, like your on ramps, like the way you you know cross margining. Some of these things, like the fin- infrastructure to like operate as a fund manager in crypto, is still very nascent. And like when you come from traditional finance, you're like, wow, like we're in diapers here. We had the Morgan Stanley team on. They they kind of. We're of the same um, uh, belief. How much has your life changed in terms of how more difficult is it for you, given everything that's going on in the banking crisis? Obviously, we don't know. You talk about like the DPEG in large part being because banks like you didn't have the send network, which is a huge was a huge part of how market make like how you'd settle trades, especially on the weekend. You have Signature and Silvergate basically gone out of the equation. What does that mean for for like the stability of something like USDC? What does that mean for generally the OTC market, like liquidity in the market? Like, and then maybe tying that into kind of this whole banking crisis and <laughs> macro, but I, we'll get to that in a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. I mean, look, like I think uh, I, I was listening to, to another Empire episode and someone brought up the, the point that it's, it's like actually it's very complex to operate a, a crypto fund, all the infrastructure required that it, it like doesn't really make sense to do unless you're, you know, at, at scale. And look, I think things have gotten a little bit easier, uh, but um, it's, you, you, you need to onboard with like 10 to 15 different counterparties, uh, OTC desks, custodians, exchanges, on-chain uh, infrastructure, like fireblocks and copper. Um, it, and you need to set up a number of complex, like internal policies around how value is moved. And it does make me jealous of, uh, friends who start, you know, long, short equity hedge funds and literally just have one account they log into and can do everything from one, one interface. Um, so it, it, the short answer is it actually hasn't gotten, it's gotten a little easier, but, uh, not nearly, um, uh, where, where it needs to be. Um, the, uh, I, I think the, um, I guess the second part of your question is, or or the, the, the other part of your question is kind of around the, the what's happened to the infrastructure recently. And I, I think that uh, right now um, you've seen, you have a lot less OTC borrowing and lending. That market is a shell of its former self. A couple of, I mean, maybe down 90% if you look at loans outstanding, there's no real market for borrowing OTC. and then uh, you know the the spreads on even major tokens have widened out a lot. Um there's a lot less li- spot liquidity than there was previously. Um, there's actually on chain is is actually kind of oftentimes the the best place to find liquidity um to find to find good execution. but there, this has caused some, a, a structural reset to the space. Um, I, I think on the banking side, we uh, in the aftermath of like SVB signature um, and Silvergate, we've seen crypto companies able to open accounts elsewhere, um, at least what, what, what we've seen. So I think that's that's positive, but who knows how long-term that is and, and where things will will go next. Um and uh the I, I think on the last thing just broadly on like the banking crisis is you know, it is interesting because we have seen just a resurgence in a lot of stuff happening on chain like all the metrics are up right like I think Q one of 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 twenty twenty three is going to be a lot better than Q four of twenty twenty two and some of the month, like certain months uh, of Q1 are going to be actually very, very good. Uh, and you, as you look at everything like monthly actives, trading volumes, fees, originations across, across DeFi, it's actually been, it's, it's picked up a lot. You know, no- So my sense is um, kind of the bank account of last resort for a lot of companies in crypto will be just USDC in a Gnosis safe uh, wallet. And, um, so I, I think that's that's been an, another kind of interesting, uh, interesting dynamic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there's been obviously some folks that you know I want to tie this into just a bit on the regulatory side of things that you kind of referenced. Uh, I think this act where at some point they made holding gold illegal in the U.S. in the '30s. Um, what probability do you ascribe to that event happening for crypto, where the U.S. government says, "Hey, you can't you can't hold crypto"? Um, like how regulation has always been a thing in crypto. Like there's always these walls of worry that we need to climb, but I'm curious, generally what you think, um, different scenarios for the regulatory environment, what are the things that you're mostly interested in and maybe hopeful that can happen over the next, you know, 12, 18 months?
1: I, I think if I had to like peg a pr- probability of like uh, confiscation of, of, property, like of digital assets, like I, you know, maybe this is naive or, or optimistic, but I would say like low single digit percentage. I mean, I think it's non-zero, but I just, I, I don't know that it's, it's certainly not like the, the, the base case. Um, there's also a question of if that happens, what happens to the, pre- what happens to market prices? And I don't think it's the, necessarily the answer is that there's a massive shock to, to the downside. I think like gold actually performed fairly well, in the couple decades following the confiscations, um, as it as it was traded, kind of globally. Um, but look, I, I think regulation is just the biggest challenge. Like it's it's big, both the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity in, in the space right now. And I, you know, that's why um, you know. But and, and that's why I think it just has to be a focus of everyone in the industry. Um and I think as I think as as the technology gets better and as we prove like real use cases that actually provide people with value, I think the regulation will will actually kind of follow and catch up to that. I mean, you're seeing this with a bit with Chat GPT in the AI space right now, where some people are saying, hey, we need to slow down, like we're not aware of all the risks that this could uh you know inflict on humanity. And other people are like, Well, look, this is other people that are pushing it forward are saying, Hey, look, like we we need to come, you know, we don't want to slow this down because um, this technology is incredibly useful. It's not abstract anymore. It's useful. And we should, you know, we, we should figure out some guardrails, but we should we should push it forward. And so I think in crypto right now, like people just want to regulate it because it's like it's providing for most people very little value. And so that to yeah. me is big is, is going to be critical.
2: Yeah, I don't think anyone at this point disagrees that some regulation is good. We just got to figure out a sensible regulation that kind of meets this new technology. (laughs) Can't regulate new technology with necessarily old playbooks. It needs to be somewhat adapted. Um, We've covered a lot in this episode. One of the things that I think we always appreciate is just getting your thoughts on generally what are the things that you're mostly focused on in terms of like, what are you paying attention to? What are you reading? Kind of what's interesting to you in the market? Anything else you think is interesting?
1: So the, one of the areas, I, I mentioned it earlier, that is is if you look at tokenization of real-world assets, it's had a bit of a renaissance recently. So we, we kind of track an index of non-stablecoin RWAs, because stablecoins are the biggest RWA, they're tokenized dollars, yeah. but non-stablecoin RWAs are up like 5X in the past six, seven months in terms of on-chain, on-chain volumes. And um, some of that's in and like, what are these things?
2: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like tr- things like treasuries, tokenized credit. Um, you know, they're tokenized carbon credit markets. A lot of the categories that are getting uh, tackled first are more kind of some longer tail markets. Um, but w- there, there's some in the commodity, physical commodity space, projects there that, that have traction. Um, but they're... Uh, you know, we're seeing real, there's been actual progress recently, which is encouraging because, I mean, this is obviously something people have talked about since 2017, like to- token, to- let's tokenize real estate and then, you know, trade it on chain and it, it like, it hasn't worked. Um, and so part of the question was like, well, why didn't it work? People have been trying these experiments for a long time. And I think it was, it was lack of infrastructure, right? Fire mm-hmm. and Anchorage were founded in 2018. Uh, you know, Coinbase custody was found in twenty. Like these things, these products didn't exist until recently. I think there was a scalability issue. I think there was like perceived smart contract risk premium. Um, there were there were all these issues, and a lot of those a lot of those things have been kind of solved at this point. Um, and so, I'm paying very close attention to the, to to those markets because I think that if we have tokenized real world assets that are trading on permission smart contracts, like it, that is like a very, very real use case that regulators are going to, I think, take a lot less issue with, because it's basically using blockchain as rails to facilitate normal capital markets activity. So you kind of have seen this, you know, KKR tokenized an LP stake in in one of their private equity funds on Avalanche. You have some big institutions doing something similar on uh a, a permissioned lending protocol called Credits, um, and I think a lot of these things are kind of gradually, then suddenly, in terms of their uh, kind of uh, uh, adoption profile, and so that is to me is a big, uh, you know, a big area of liftoff that we're probably probably one of the biggest areas that we're we're focused on.
2: Yeah. I want to kind of close this great episode um, on just historical perspectives because you've been around for space. I want to do a quick fire round questions. But before there, uh, maybe the more important question, um, what has been like the biggest learnings for you over the last, you know, 12 months of crazy timeline that, you know, every, Jason and I used to joke because every time we'd say it couldn't get worse, it just got worse. And I'm curious, like you've been through many cycles, not just in crypto, Um, and yeah, what, what is the things that you look back on and say, yeah, I think this is like the biggest like takeaways or lessons or, you know, things that you've learned over the last 12 months.
1: Yeah. I, I think there's, how long do we have? Um, Uh, uh, (laughs) this is an hour
2: therapy session transitioning to more (laughs) wellness episode guys. So yeah, buckle up. (laughs) Um,
1: we, um, no, it's, but we, we did this. Like very long kind of internal reflection on on all the mistakes we've we've made um, over the past years, um, and kind of tried to like group them into themes or buckets. Um, the I'll kind of rattle off of, uh, just a couple. I I think one is partnering with you want to partner with good really good people, good founders, and there's n- no idea. Can be is too great if the person leading it is is not like ethical or is not um, really fundamentally aligned with what they're building. I think there's a lot of like mercenary. There there were a lot of mercenary founders that raised capital in this prior cycle that launched a token, launched a network, didn't really care about the blockchain space, and, and kind of have dumped their tokens or or kind of quite quit and. You know, we want to generally the lesson has been like partner with with missionaries, not mercenaries um, and people that are aligned with like really building valuable products in the space and thinking long term. Uh, Yeah, that that's that's a huge thing. I I think the other is incentive alignment. You know, a lot of teams. uh, Had very short vesting schedules. The token price went up. Maybe they maybe didn't need a token. They launched it too early. They got distracted by like their kind of paper wealth. They maybe monetized some of that. Maybe they're not incentivized to continue to work on on building. Um, and that's why it, there is something like if you think about capitalism and like a lot of the biggest companies that a lot of the, the the value that's been created in the world today, it's it's early stage venture capitalists partnering with founders, and both groups are kind of illiquid locked in for 10, 15 years. And then there's an IPO. And then that, you know, the founders can maybe take a little bit of chips off the table in an IPO, but there's also regulation around how much they can sell. So there's just this like very long-term incentive alignment and there's too much short-termism in, in crypto. And so, you know, again, like these are things that, you know, maybe we, we, we learn the hard way. Um, the only the third one i'd mention i mean there're probably like 15 20 things i could could mention but the third one i would say is um the uh the, you know certainly like great ideas without killer execution are just completely worthless and there were um you know there was some amazing technology that just never got monetized or was never really i think Explored to its full potential in this past cycle, so maybe second, third movers in this next cycle will be able to pick up where those those other teams left off. Um, I don't know. Those are three. We, I know, that, I know we have a shelf life on this this podcast, but there there are, there are a lot of others. Um, those are my yeah. probably three three top of mind ones.
2: Those are really good ones. Like I, I would definitely agree. the The last point you make is a really good one, which is sometimes I think my best investments have been second or third iterations of a particular idea and i think we're in that environment where a lot of people it's like will be non-consensus to invest in another exchange or another you know trading desk like genesis like these businesses were like cash generative like super profitable viable businesses with real traction but people confuse and conflate two things it's like don't don't confuse terrible management that with it's not like banks are not a viable business model because Silicon valley went out of business it was just like they just there was a s- specific human error there on the execution side and i generally think there's going to be really good opportunities and the same is true like the i don't think people properly are equipped on this non-linearity concept of understanding how quickly the infrastructure is developing in crypto it took forever for ethereum to like pr- transition to proof of stake but the progress that has happened since then beacon chain the merge and then you know uh, account abstraction, like all of those changes have vast and deep implications for how apps are developed, the user experience that I think people, if you're not really close to the metal, it's hard to appreciate. But I think a lot of, the, we're in that state of the market where even investors and, you know, people generally are very skeptical of this technology yet again, um, but don't have a finer appreciation for how how, you know, a good idea can work because the infrastructure has changed. And I think that's very much true in an L2 context with account abstraction, like these things plug together, like theorem is working very well. And I think just people don't give it enough credit Um, because, you know, in six months it has changed in a very meaningful concrete manner. And, and so, but you're always going to have the skeptics of like, this is bullshit technology. Like just honestly go invest in AI and like, you know, call it a day and, you know, just, but, you know, nonetheless, um, yeah.
1: No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's spot on. Like people don't always diagnose like the why, like why did an idea fail? Sometimes due to timing, it was too early. The infrastructure wasn't there. Um, and, and sometimes it's lack of execution. Uh, but oftentimes the mm-hmm. idea itself is like, has a lot of merit. So I think that's, yeah. you know, but I think that's spot on.
2: You read my mind because I want to go in a quick fire round. And the first question is, do you think that will uh, an algorithmic stablecoin will come to market and be successful?
1: Over a long enough time scale, yes. Interesting. Uh,
2: how many hours of, oh, Okay, you want to say some more?
1: I want to I want to ask a clarification question. So like, when we say <laughs> algorithmic stable... I think also, how do we define algorithmic stable true. coins? Like, would something uh, like DAI or LUSD um, or, or FRAX, I guess, be considered algorithmic or, or kind of over-collateralized? So that, like,
2: uh, good question. I guess FRAX is like, I would say, hybrid, like collateral, like it's so collateralized, but it, it's like less collateral over time, I guess, a uh, model. Yeah. There's, but like some of like, I guess more concretely, like a Terra, like fully algorithmic, like game theory.
1: Mm, I, I think that's tough.
2: Yeah. I think some collateral what is what you're saying, but
1: some, some collateral or certainly over collateralized stable coins, I think are, you know, that, yeah. that are not backed by dollars in a bank account. Um, I see mm-hmm. those working. I mean, die is, yeah. is, the, is the great case studies.
2: Good point. Second point. Uh, do you think the US loses its reserve status in a week where you've seen trades and commodity markets being now settled in different other types of currencies, China trading with Saudi Arabia and whatnot? Like and if it happens, in what time scale?
1: I I do think that it well, look, I think it will, will eventually happen on on what time scale. Um, it's tough to say, but I mean, if you look at our our you know, the budget deficits our country is running. If you look at our national debt um, and debt to GDP, which is kind of 110, 120% and growing every year. Um, If you look at like our social security and Medicare liabilities and like the demographic trends in the US, like it is mathematically very difficult to to grow or tax your way out of this hole. And so then I'm off wondering like, well, you know, if if there is a shift to another global reserve currency, like what does that look like? How quickly does it happen? The U.S. is still kind of probably better than than the euro, the yen, the renminbi. b. Mm-hmm. So what, like, you know, uh, could it be gold? Could it be Bitcoin? I, I don't. You know, I, I I think those are probably. The, I mean, I think those are the best best. I think Bitcoin is probably the best option, but how what what that looks like. Uh, is not clear. I would say, yeah, in the next 20 years, I I could see it, um, could could Mm -hmm. see that, could see it happening.
2: Yeah. You have a blank slate, 100 bucks. How much do you allocate to Bitcoin and ETH and what ratio? I need to hold for like, okay.
1: If you have to hold for, yeah, holding for constant for 10 years, I think it has Mm -hmm. to be something that looks close to an equal weighting between Bitcoin and ETH. I think they're very different. And they can both be successful independent of one another. Um, but whether it's 40, 60 or 60, 40, I, I think they're, I think from, in my mind, they're equal weighting and they're both, I think incredibly attractive right now relative to the underlying kind of fundamentals uh, behind both of them. I mean, mm-hmm. especially if I can stake my ETH over, over the next 10 years. Uh, no. Cause stake ETH is trading at a, Twenty times earnings ratio, roughly, uh, as, as I'm looking at it. So, uh, yeah, look, I probably 50 50. I think it's tough to say one's definitively, uh, you know, b- better or worse than than the other in today's market.
2: Yeah. What do you think we see first? Uh, Crypto is sitting at 1.22, 1.2, 1.2 trillion market cap with this five six percent inflation. What do you think we see first? Five hundred billion or ten trillion? Ten trillion. Nice. And what's the ratio of the market cap, uh, the Bitcoin dominance in that
1: scenario? I, I think it's probably in the 30 to 40% range. I also think a big chunk of that will, a big chunk of the market, if we get to that point, will just be tokenized real world assets. Real world assets, including perhaps um, a
2: centralized, like a CBDC?
1: Maybe a CBDC. Um, hmm. Uh, i think or just expansion of existing fiat backed stable coins or decentralized stable coins um,
2: nice last two questions uh Jason, if you want to ask more jump in please uh, how many hours of sleep do you get and that's less or more than in the last 12 months
1: i've been trying to improve my my sleep hygiene a lot so it's been a major 2023 focus um, I, I i aim for for eight hours a night but i I still have a bad habit of like checking my Checking crypto prices um, right when I wake up, right before you go
2: to bed. Yeah. So, you know what I started to do? I, I, as you know, I'm a terrible sleeper. I started to put my phone in a different room. Thank you, Jason. I think I got this from you. It's, yeah, I've been doing simple. that for years. Like, honestly, the best small thing like that, like when I do this, like I've A yeah. I've B well, not A B test, but like, I don't have like a simulation <laughs> parallel universe. But nights that I put my phone in another
0: room, I'll just sleep better. This is not advice. What, Legal. What about what about
1: your alarm? Do you have like a manual? man? I don't.
0: Snooze, I I also suck with snoozing. I'll just like hit my phone. So when it's in the other room, it forces me to get out of bed and go right and go. Then I just turn my alarm off, get in the shower, and Got get it. started with the day. Yeah, yeah,
2: This is a hack. This is a hack. Okay. Um, yeah. and then perhaps uh, last question for me is: uh, What would you tell a younger Ben that is getting started in crypto?
1: Uh. I, I would say that as you think about investing in the space, be very cognizant of uh, what you know and what you don't know and don't convince yourself, you know, something that you don't actually know. So in other words, hmm. I think being aware of, of blind spots in the space is important. So even when you have very high conviction on, on an opportunity, I think it kind of position sizing is important because it's, it shows humility that, Hey, you could be wrong on this. So specifically, you know, what, I think there are some things I've been very confident in these investment theses over the years that maybe turned out okay, but not nearly where I, I thought they they would be. And so I think it kind of comes down to like sizing, sizing positions um, in 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 a uh, in a more humble manner where you have more diversity because you're going to get a lot of things wrong in in the space. That's one one of many pieces of, uh, of yeah. advice I would have for my. We used myself. to always say
2: internally at Parify that thesis is half the battle. Position sizing is equally important. People don't spend nearly enough time thinking about position sizing um, and, and calibrating that over time. I'll, I'll cheat. I'll, I said the last one, but I'll follow up because yeah. this is a great uh, answer. Uh, is What is something that you've changed your mind recently? You or as a team, as a firm, but maybe specifically just you. Because, by the way, to listeners, none, none of the stuff that Ben says actually represents the views of Parify, and I will say this because my when I was there, I used to <laughs> say this all the time. So I'll just spare Ben of saying this, um, but nonetheless, go for
1: it. Yeah, I. So, I, uh, I think one of the things that's like changed. Kind of gradually over the past year. This this is maybe like not a totally popular popular viewpoint, but I I think a lot of the just permissionless DeFi infrastructure, or like a lot of the best projects and protocols that uh, have really had amazing runs over the past few years, like may struggle just to to scale and fit into a world that that are regulated. Um, and so i love the idea like i think that 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 space will be around for uh for a long time and will probably net grow but um i as i think about like what's best for the industry and like how important regulation is like i i'd love to see and you're kind of seeing it uh with, with some of these teams like building out ways for institutions to actually u- use their products is important i i just i guess to be concrete like what's changed is maybe my my estimate of the tam of of that the the permissionless um defy market uh, i still think it's a lot bigger than it is today but um i think we need to go after um the the permission side uh as well yeah yeah definitely
2: well it's been awesome man always a pleasure having you on um And I don't know if there's anything else you want to cover, but this is all I had. So it's been a great discussion and all things um, that we wanted to cover
1: no th- thanks so much for uh for having me on it's, it's always uh humbling to be here so really really appreciate it
0: this is, this no,
2: is even all the better when you when you don't share stories that embarrass me you know last time you shared one of my harry potter lego collections so this time we've been spared <laughs> oh, yeah. ben,
0: ben has been coming to a uh, blockworks events for ben how i think you're at one of the first ones yeah they're... one of the first das
1: uh events in like 2018 2019 when it was like 40 or when it was like 100 people now it's whatever
2: yeah. thousand so yeah this is a rhetorical question because this is where jason plugs get your tickets for permissionless buy now Ben's speaking. prices hey, go up speaking. in
0: three days ben, are you speaking this year <laughs> what what was that are, are you speaking this year
1: uh yeah i think i am i think i right, am. good uh, good so we got no, two speakers
0: I, yeah I, buy your I permissionless.
2: <laughs> by the way bet bet jason tried to, me to asked me to buy tickets i'm like since when do speakers get to buy tickets for conferences jesus christ we're definitely you know, who buy, you, know you
0: know what speakers have to buy tickets for conferences is speakers who say they're going to speak one year and then and then bail last minute so robbed yeah. by
2: airlines but i <laughs> this, awesome.
0: this is awesome man uh you're, you're always welcome to come on the show and it's been Thanks. a great chat and uh f- fun to see you and santi banter as well um and yeah man this is great Awesome, yeah. thanks, thanks a lot, Thanks, Ben. Thanks yeah. for coming yeah. on. Cheers, man. guys. Yeah, really I would cool. tell
2: people, I would tell people to go follow Ben on Twitter, but Ben doesn't have a formal. Uh, he's probably, you know, the only person in crypto that doesn't have a Twitter account that we know of. Maybe one day he'll tell us what his alt account is. Maybe Deeton Spartan, who knows? Maybe <laughs>
0: Spartan.
2: Cheers, yeah. guys.
1: You, you can email me or, or send me snail mail. <laughs>